Welcome to the Critical Witness podcast, where we talk faith, apologetics, evangelism, and anything else we can think of. We hope you enjoy the show. Right, it says we're live on YouTube, so... Uh, welcome to another evening with Critical Witness. We're here with Dr. Duncan Forbes, who is part of Urban Ministries uh, UK, or just Urban Ministries, depending on which social media stream uh, you're looking at. Uh, it's a pleasure to have you with us today, Duncan. Just checking that um, we are live. Oh, there we go. We have an echo. So we're, we're live. Um just as we usually do, just to to start us off uh, with the with the evening, is just an introduction to who you are and how you became a Christian, and then we'll see where this conversation takes us. So over to you. Cool. Thank, thanks for having me. Um, just uh, to make me feel uh, more aware of where we all are, um, I'm in London right now. Where are you guys? Good question. I'm in Guildford. So not too um, far. I'm in Sutton, so not too far from you. Okay, okay, cool, cool. Um, so yeah, I'm Duncan. I'm in um, southwest London in a, a big council estate, which is the same estate I grew up in. And uh, many, many years ago, I lived in a high-rise block of flats with my mum. And my mum was ill. And I saw her turn to God and saw her life change around uh you know dramatically and so i was like in the only language that i knew back then i said to my mum when i was four years old i said mum i want jesus in my heart too and um we then we kind of had a interesting time in our block of flats in that um we were poor and my mum would pray for food and for money and as a little boy, I'd see these miracles where money would just turn up. Or one day, even a woman knocked on the door with two shopping bags uh, of food and gave them to us. So I, I grew up seeing stuff like that as a kid. Um, so it was never a shadow of doubt in my mind that God was real. And um, I didn't have a dad, but my mum taught me that God was my heavenly father. And so I, I had quite a strong sense of that as a kid, that he was my heavenly father. Um, the local church school that I went to uh, really was a very classist environment for a kid from an estate to go to. And it was kind of ironic because we were one of the one of the we were one of the smaller numbers, I guess, of uh, Christian families at the at the church of england school uh but we were made to feel like outsiders so i remember one time like at the end of sc the school day going out into playground and seeing all the parents on this side and then my mum standing on the other side on our own and it was really communicated to me quite early on that we were the scum of the earth and i at the primary school there were people like, I mean, there, there was a, there were future lords there, you know, whose dads were in the House of Lords and that. And um, 
So that was that was a bit of a weird experience, and I ended up getting a. Um, I ended up doing well in what was called an 11 plus exam, um, which they had back then and got offered a scholarship somewhere. And then there was a boarding school I could go to where I could get a free education. And, uh, and I, I took that route. Um, and when I was there, I had, a, I had a terrible time. I was abused in all the different ways that that you can be abused. I ended up with PTSD and I ended up turning to things like alcohol when I was about 14 years old as a way of just dealing with stuff. And and basically I had quite a bad temper on me. I got into boxing and martial arts and I would quite easily explode and get in fights with people. I couldn't really control my temper. And one day when I was 18 years old, I, I was so angry that I knew I'd explode. So I thought I'd better get away from people so that I, I don't hurt anyone. And I go into a forest and I'm walking through this forest and I see this bivouac. You know, you know, the things that scouts make in the, in the forest, those little shelters with bracken on them and everything. I see this bivouac and I'm like, let me just sit in this bivouac for a bit and chill out. And I sit in the bivouac. And I suddenly feel like there's a shower on my head, but not of water, but like they're, like they're drops of love that were going through my head, in my body. Now, I wasn't one of these blokes that would go for a walk in the woods and come back and say, hey, everyone, I've had a mystical experience. You know, so this was very strange uh, experience. And I, and I had the impression of a voice, not an audible voice, but an impression of a voice in my head say, I'm your father and I want to be your father. And I just broke down in tears and I was like, oh, I'm so sorry, God, I'm going to do everything your way from now on. And so for me, that was like not technically a second conversion, but it was kind of like a second conversion. And when I when I meet up with people who knew me when I was like 17 years old, um, they tend to view it as I wasn't a Christian before. And then I became a Christian then. Um, but I think it really happened when I was four years old. But I was just in a bad environment for a, for a few years and responded to that bad environment in some bad ways. And so after that, um, you know, I know a lot of people tell their story that then everything was great. I found I was really down after that. Like uh, I found the change in lifestyle and having to process the hurts in my life without the normal kind of shields and normal kind of things that you would use to get through life. I found that proper hard and I didn't really have many Christian friends. So actually I went through a really difficult, really difficult time. And um, by the grace of God, that didn't last forever. Um, and over time, I did after a while realize, oh, I, I need to actually get counseling for my PTSD and I you know for years I tried talking to church leaders about my PTSD symptoms and pretty much got brushed off every time um, and by the grace of God eventually I got to talk to someone who said you should have counseling and I had counseling for that and got to work through a lot of stuff um, and also in my life I guess a big part of my story is that um, I was born with a condition called Ehlers-Danlos syndrome 
which is a disability that I won't explain now because it would just be too long and boring. But I've got a vlog on my YouTube channel, Dunk's Vlog, where the very first one of Dunk's disability vlog explains what it is. And that has been a challenge as well, dealing with that in life. But what I can say is that whether it has been dealing with my sin, whether it's been dealing with emotional and psychological pain, or if it's been dealing with physical pain, I just keep finding that, that God is enough and that he's so kind. And I, I wouldn't say that my life has been like a bed of roses, but at the same time, I'd say I do feel very content how good God has, has been to me. So, uh, yeah, I guess that's like a quick version of, of wow. how I've become a Christian and everything. Wow. And there's, there's a lot in there to, to unpick, but uh, just amazing testimony of, of God's goodness. And how, have, just out of curiosity, have you had a similar experience to that bivouac moment since? Have you had <laughs> other moments like that? Not the, not the shower of love going actually through my body but um i do i do have times where i feel an incredible sense of delight at how good god is sometimes it's actually when i'm in a lot of physical pain so basically i'm always in physical pain but in general at night time it gets worse sometimes i'll be lying on my bed just groaning out loud or sometimes it's, it's a lot louder than groans you know I won't I won't do the noise now but it's you know um, can be quite intense and sometimes in those moments you know where I just cry out to God and maybe just uh, put on some worship music and try to worship him sometimes in those moments I feel something similar like just a real sense of delight in how good God is and how much he loves me. And uh, I wouldn't say that's all the time. And I don't want to try and claim that that should be normative for everyone. But it's just uh, something that every now and then uh, God really blesses me with. There was, um, when I was listening to you, um, you know, tell your story, um, in a lot of ways, there's quite a lot of um, not too dissimilar to some of my own experiences sort of growing up and, and, and becoming a Christian as well. Um, and um, one thing it just made me think of listening to you is, um, you know, when you were talking about being at school and feeling that, you know, quite a middle-class environment and feeling kind of excluded from, from that as, as sort of work from a sort of working class family, et cetera, sort of, well, poor, poor family, I think. Um, it, listen, listen to you tell your story. Um, it's very difficult to have, I don't know if you have similar experiences, but trying to talk about your background and upbringing to people from a Christian middle-class background is very uncomfortable. And they don't, uh, oh, have you had similar sort of experiences? Because they, they just don't get it. Like there's a certain, like, you know, you, you, you have certain experiences growing up and they don't have anything that's at all uh, related to those experiences that you have. And I very quickly just, you know, stop telling people about it because it's people, they don't know what to do. They've never had those kinds of experiences and they don't know, it's just so foreign to their to their kind of christian experience 
Yeah, yeah. No, I know what you mean. I think, um, I think for me, there's a kind of a continuum that I will move along depending on what signals I get from someone. So um, sometimes you, you're talking to someone and you think, do you know what? I'm not even going to try explaining some of the cultural background right now because it's too much work for where this person's at. Um, and so you're kind of then at that end of the continuum. Other times I'm chatting to someone and the kind of questions they ask along the way and their body language suggests that they're thinking, I, I want to understand you a bit better and I acknowledge there's differences, help me understand you better. And, and then I find myself moving more this way. And then I've got other friends who even though culturally they're from such a different background, we've had a number of shared life experiences so like growing up fatherless, you know, there's, there's lots of people from uh, middle class backgrounds who have grown up fatherless. And so uh, you can relate to them on that level. And even if they don't understand the poverty thing, they understand the fatherless thing. So I guess in a sense, sometimes when I'm talking to people, I'm looking for kind of like subconsciously, are there points of contact where I can share my story with someone comfortably and not get preached at so for example I know someone who shared their story with someone and the person interrupted them and said oh no 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 it couldn't have been like that um, and and same way I have seen a difference with uh, sometimes some of my posh friends uh, will invite me around their place I've got to know them a bit and uh, they invite me for dinner and it'll be the first time I'm meeting their wife and they'll ask me something about my story and I'll share it. And sometimes their wife, who doesn't know me, will, will interrupt me and say, oh, no, I'm sure you misunderstood that situation. I'm sure when, when that teacher did that to you, it was really because da 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 and, and it does kind of, on this continuum, it makes you go back at this end because you're like, well, if I'm going to share vulnerable stuff from my life and if... Uh, at first face value, whatever uh, the phrase is, you straight away discount my interpretation and straight away start defending someone <laughs> who has oppressed me in some way. Then I'm like, I think I'm going to stay at, at this end of the continuum just because it's not worth trying to explain. You know, it's exhausting as well, isn't it? If you're always having to explain yeah. your background to people. Mm. Yeah. There's, um, you since you talked about the sort of class stuff um very rarely get to chat to to um to people about especially people from a working class background as well because there is something about um at least english christianity that um has a the effect of of turning people middle class it has like this middle class effect where um i don't know similar to experiences that you know when i grew up um i didn't I had, sort of, you know, people around me were not married. They, they didn't stay married. The, you know, no one, not many people had a dad, you know, people. Um, and um, it's, and suddenly you, you become a Christian and you're surrounded by people who tend to be, uh, at least in a lot of churches I went to, I sort of, when I first became a Christian, I ended up in a sort of uh, Pentecostal church, African Pentecostal church. 
and it was very much about you know having having a job working wanting to be successful going to university getting married staying married and the um so the effect of that is for all appearances you look middle class and so if you come out of a working class background into the into the you generally into the english church it does have this effect of you sort of then I feel like you sort of lose your roots. It's very easy to lose your, lose your roots because if you are, if you do go to university, your friends, you're much less likely to come into contact from working class background. And so your friends are middle class, um, their friends are middle class, church is full of the middle class. And it, um, it, I don't know whether you thought too much about that, that kind of, the kind of effect that the church has on people. Um, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree with you. I think there is, there it is a thing, and I think there's so many factors for it. So um, one is um, one factor is the fact that you know a lot of Christians use the term social lift, and there is a perception in the church in Britain that when a working class person becomes a Christian, that it is a good thing that they experience social lift. And that's not something that gets interrogated. It's just an assumption that, that people see because we grow up in the kind of system we grow up in Britain, people just assume, well, surely it's right that you have social lift and surely this is what God would want of you. And people even assume along with that, that if you start reading your Bible, that will automatically give you social lift um, as if as if working class people don't ever read, um, you know, and and I think that I think that that needs to be interrogated, especially in light of what Paul says about class in Corinthians. Um, but but also I, I think it's also about all the resources that we have. Um, which means, you know, most of the, so, you know, you guys are into apologetics. The majority of apologetics um, resources in this country are aimed at the middle classes, right? Mm -hmm. um, and for the last few years, it's been the new atheists that Christian publishing in this country has really, you know, targeted and even in so so a lot of the books you read by reading them you just breathe in middle class culture and you hear the the answers to middle class culture but you don't hear the answers to the questions that working class culture is asking so much and even in terms of where people are doing ministry even terms like we say student ministry but what we really mean is university ministry we don't mean fe college so, you know, there's there's loads of FE colleges around the UK. I, I used to work in FE, so I'm aware of how common FE, further education colleges are. But every single time I hear a Christian say they're involved in student ministry, I just know that they don't mean FE college, apart from the one lady I met who works for an organisation that does stuff in FE colleges. But so we've even... We, so not only have we started redefining terms along class lines, 
But it also means that if you grow up in a working class environment and go to your local FE college, statistically speaking, you're way less likely to hear the gospel mm. than if you grow up in a middle class home and go to university. Mm. And obviously by that, I'm not wanting to in any way diminish all the hard work that people are doing in universities, uh, not, not at all. But um, we've got an imbalance and, and then from where you get less people come from an FE college into church life, it means that church life ends up being middle class and there aren't people from the working classes represented there. And then, then the people like you and I, you know, we go off to university. Uh, we've constantly got this pull of, uh, of, you know, pulling us away from our roots and not using the vernacular that we used to use not using a strong an accent that we used to use. And, and even, I would say, sometimes thinking in different categories to how we grew up thinking to the point that sometimes we meet up with our old mates and the way that we talk about life sometimes means we've lost what J.H. Bavink called missionary power, mm. where our yeah. friends are like, what's happened to you? You've gone yeah. proper soft. You're really posh <laughs> now. And, and everything and you know and in terms of apologetics it's like when people start trying to discuss the ontological problem with their friends at the bus stop or something you know and it's like what's going on here you know my, my wife says i um i speak differently around different people so i think when you're work, working class um especially when you go to university you realize that you have to get very good at being sort of identifying um, how to present yourself in different contexts. And so she even says, like, if I play football, I sound different. So if I'm like playing, if I'm like, when I was used to play, like play football, like 11 aside on a Saturday, you know, most people are not middle class, it's mostly working class sport. And so she said, I even sound different the way I'm shouting and speaking. She's like, why do you sound different? But then when I'm around like, other people, so I'm at church or I'm at, I'm at work, like at the university or something, around different people, I speak differently. So it's, it's quite fine how I think you, I don't, that's not necessarily a Christian thing, but I think, you know, as you said, like working class people that sort of filter out into sort of more middle-class culture, you learn, you learn, you have, you have to get sort of wise about how to, to do that. And I've, you know, I've not managed to, uh, I found it very difficult. Like you said, you go back and you're not having the same conversations. Like it feels foreign. You know, in a sense, like when I'm, you know, in the changing room and stuff, the stuff you're talking about, and they're talking about, I think, oh, no one talks about that stuff, like when, you know, um, you know, at church or and things like that. So it's, it's really interesting that I think, so, like you said, it's quite an astute sort of observation that you, um, you kind of lose your way a little bit, I think. This is really interesting to, to listen to, and um, I can kind of relate with regards to the different cultural elements. So I, I grew up in another culture though even in that culture is probably very much middle class mission has an aspect of middle class even in really poor countries um we were in a town we had running water and electricity and behind my house was a settlement which didn't and um so we we definitely grew up in and i went to a fairly private school when i look back on it it was very much a mission school but had really good teaching but coming back into the UK, the stuff you're talking about, the the how much you limit, how much you share, depending on the person's 
response to you. Uh, I can definitely relate to that. Um, and also changing accents. My accent changes all the time because of who I grew up with. So it, it, I end up accidentally mimicking people, um, especially if they're Australian because that's around the area that I grew up. But, I mean, there's, there's so much in there that to, to sort of unpick. But I'm very aware that once the church has become very middle class, now I'm in Guildford, which is probably one of the most middle class places in the country, but there are still there is still an estate there is there is still a proportion of the population quite high actually that's on the poverty line but we don't see them at least i don't see them in necessarily in the churches that i've visited and in my own church and i think part of that as well is is our alpha courses and the way that we do stuff is you have to have a certain level of education you we're answering as you put it we're answering questions the middle class is asking but we aren't necessarily relating to the culture of different classes i'm just curious are there any like main points where a middle class church could start shifting language questions even preaching style <laughs> Like what? Where would you see the main difference between a, a middle class church and a church that's open to to all classes? Yeah, it's a big question. I think I think first and foremost, I think it does require heart change before anything else. So I think I think in in British culture, there's this idea that if you're middle class, you can do anything. So, for example. Any any British movie, uh, well, not any, but a, a lot of TV, a lot of British TV and British movies, the guy with the working class accent who plays the working class guy is a middle class actor most, most of the time, right? Um, and there's, and, and it, drive, it drives me nuts. You know, I'll, I'll go to watch a movie and straight away I'll be like, oh my days, like why... Why did surely there's a working class accent that could have done this and talked in his normal voice? Like, why have we got this fake accent and everything? And yeah. there's this mentality out there. The the middle classes can do everything. They just need a couple of tips. Oh, and by the way, Phil, I'm not saying no, no, no. That's fine. Doing now. Yeah, even if you were, probably, <laughs> probably happy to hear it. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, if, if we just have a few pointers, we'll be able to do it, you know, mm. um, the same way in the acting world with with yellow face. You know, it's like we can play Asian men. Just give us the right makeup um, and the right script and we can do it. And meanwhile, Asian people are saying, no, you can't. It's offensive and you don't do it properly. And And I think what we need in the church is a recognition that a lot of the things that put off working class people when they attend a church function, a lot of the things are, are not just the external things, but they're the heart things that lead to the external things. Yeah. Which means that if, if someone can really get to grips with their own prejudice in their heart, and if they can repent of that, seek God's forgiveness and seek the Holy Spirit's change, in their heart that will overflow into all the externals and 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 then they can they can be they can have the most posh accent 
and they can eat the most poncy food as it would be perceived by people visiting. But if they've got that love and humility coming out of their heart, people are going to respond better to them than if someone just learns what they need to change on their on that outside. Yeah. yeah. Now, that's not to say there aren't things that people should change, externals that people should change, but I just think that first and foremost it has to be the heart issue because if 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 you've grown up with a narrative of the lower classes are lower because they're not as good as us. Mm. And if you've if you've had a diet of watching things like Benefit Street, you know, then you will have been culturally conditioned to make assumptions about people that aren't necessarily true. Mm. And and that is gonna that's gonna leak out without without the heart change. I think it's really important uh, as a, a point. And it probably was in my question there, like give give me some tips. <laughs> but but I think one of the ways that a church can really highlight that heart change is through hospitality you open your house to all you're no matter how poncy no matter how wealthy if you trust someone to come into your house sit at your table you're starting to show a humility i think and then if that humility is then reciprocated that you go to their house <laughs> um and and it's a two-way street rather than no actually you can just come onto mine i don't want to impose on you i think there's a humility in accepting hospitality when it's offered obviously um in both directions um and yeah sorry it, it, one, one of the problems of that um it uh building that is what, what tends to happen is we tend to lose points of contact that's how i kind of think of it is like when you're middle class you have fewer points of contact with working class people because if you lived in the state you tend to leave it because you want to be in the nice schools and you know and all that sort of thing you tend to stop playing sport you know the sports that you're interested in change you know so where you're in a team of of people who live near you now like you know playing in a different league or something like that one of the issues even with like i agree with you saying about hospitality but i think one of the challenges of that is you know it is it is a stereotype but there's truth to it is i think working class people struggle to accept um mm. um help from people they perceive to be a um in a different you know middle, middle class i think generally we find that quite well that, accepting help from anyone sometimes but especially from that because what tends to happen the points of contact always tend to be the person middle class trying to help trying to yeah. help the person yeah, yeah, who, who's who's working class and so the points of contact are never they're not always as two people who are equal mm -hmm. but as one person who's trying to help bring the person up or yeah. and i don't know how that and and like you were saying Duncan, when you were at school sometimes that's how you experience it. And that might not be the intention of, of the person who's trying to help them, but often that's how you perceive it. It's like they're only doing that because they want to, yeah. you know, they want to show how they're better than me. And that's never, that might never be the intention, but that's often how it can be perceived. And I think there is a general uncomfort, uh, discomfort among working class people to engage in those relationships that they perceive as, as uh, top down. 
Yeah, that makes sense. I guess that emphasizes to me the need for a neutral space, i.e. church, where hospitality can happen in in a space that isn't owned by one culture, I guess. Um, Yeah, so so much to think about that. I mean, in terms of something that I've been pondering for a little while, I remember writing a blog when I was at uni (laughs) about middle class church, just something that I'd recognized. Um, But even in our, as you were pointing out, sort of apologetics and and discipleship can end up being fairly middle class. Um, but in the lead up to this, you're, you're talking about evidential apologetics being quite successful in the estate. So while there is this middle class aspect of apologetics, how have you found in your your ministry that apologetics has played a big a big part in the, in the community that you're you're in? Well, I suppose that um, it's just been interesting in that when I've been when I've been in in middle class spaces or in academic spaces, the apologetics approach has often either been like a, a classical approach of we've got to show that truth is a real thing, and we've got to show that God really does exist, um, or it's been a presuppositional apologetics uh, we and some some of my friends would say this is a caricature but this is how I've I've heard it um, uh, of uh, we mustn't do evidential apologetics we must do presuppositional apologetics and and in my context I just found that evidential apologetics was something that arose very naturally from the starting point people were at because a lot of people on our estate aren't saying that there's no god a a lot of people would say yeah obviously there's a god like they might wonder who this god is and everything but a lot of people would say yeah there is a god and like one bloke i was chatting to once in the street uh just natural first time i ever met him it's just natural conversation as it went he said to me, because I said something about the Bible, and he said, well, obviously, if there's a God, he's written a book for us. And so it could well be the Bible is that book. You know, that was that was his mindset. Mm. And so I didn't have to do any of the work that a lot of people are having to do. Uh, I didn't have to answer a lot of the questions that a lot of the apologetics books are answering at the moment obviously i'm painting with a broad brush here Mm. um so i'm we're starting with the the starting point that there is a god and um and he's written a book and so from there what comes really natural is people saying well is your book the right book because i watched a discovery channel thing and they said that your book's dodgy you know, or or someone will say, my Iman says that your Bible has been corrupted. And so then in just in my friendship with people, I'm doing evidential apologetics mm-hmm. where I'm like one one time chatting to a guy on the street, a uh, Muslim guy. And I said, I said, well, do you know what? This is actually one of my hobbies is textual criticism. So come back to my place and I will show you photographs of some of the earliest manuscripts we've got greek manuscripts of the new testament and we can chat about the transmission 
and I can show you all the mistakes that we made when we were copying it. Like we've kept a record of every mistake, you know, apart from the ones that are still buried in the desert or disintegrated somewhere, you know, I was like, so, so I'd love to show you this thing. So from that point of view, the evidential apologetics is just part of, of having friendship with people, answering the questions that they're asking. Now, in terms of, is it like when you use the word successful, um, I wouldn't say that on council estates, I've seen loads of people have faith in Jesus through evidential apologetics. I did have a, a friend of mine at university got saved that way. Um, but in terms of council state culture, I wouldn't see it's something that we've seen people um, get saved through. Hmm. And I think, you know, I think a, a lot of us would probably agree that as useful as apologetics are, they don't actually save people. Like you really do need God to do an mm-hmm. act of grace to open people's hearts, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that is through the gospel that people get saved. So if, if anyone was looking at apologetics in terms of what's the silver bullet, what will work to get converts, um, I don't see it as that, but I just see it as it's, it's one of those, it answers the questions that some people are, are asking and definitely on council estates that people will ask. So you, I think it's worth being clued up on evidential apologetics. I also think it's, a, it's less annoying than presuppositional apologetics. So, you know, that, that whole thing, I, I think there's a time and place for it. But when you say to your mate, so if I punched you, would you really be bothered? <laughs> or how can you say you'd be bothered? You think you're just a random collection of atoms. There's obviously a time and place for that, but you can only play that card so many times that you just get really annoying to your friend, mm. you know? Yeah. Um, and, and so, uh, whereas I think the evidential thing is a bit more like, look, you might think I'm totally balmy with this Bible business, but trust me, if we could just sit down and look through the historical evidence, you'd see that I'm no more balmy than the history professor who reads Julius Caesar's writings, you know, um, and thinks that Julius Caesar existed. Yeah. 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 And that's definitely what's helped me in my own faith a a lot more is the evidential apologetic side of of things. Um, I was only aware that there was classical and several others (laughs) only recently. Um, But yeah, I'd agree with Presup. I I really struggle with that. I like what you said about classical apologetics because I always think of like the, you know, as a general sort of perception of the working class, you know, we're sort of, you know, less intelligent in the middle class, you know, and um, I often find often the opposite is the case when it comes to uh, certain things we should know. So like, um, uh, you know, like there's very few people, like friends I grew up with who, who contemplate, well, not, not contemplate, but think there's no such thing as truth. Um, you know, it's just something that doesn't like, we know that things, that, that, that some things are true, uh, in the same way that, you know, um, yeah, it's just, you know, it's just interesting. And, and a bit of a BS detector, yeah. <laughs> you have a good BS detector. I think the working class. Frustratingly, as I've seen more people going to university, I have heard more people on my estate say, well, is there such a thing as objective truth? 
Right. And and I'm like, oh, mate, if you hadn't just gone to uni for three years, there's no way you'd be saying that. <laughs> um, so, uh, again, this is the problem with the concept of social lift, this idea of, well, it's really good if everyone goes to university. Well, if people are from a worldview that does believe in objective truth, um, do we necessarily want to push people to go in a learn something different for three years when there aren't even enough jobs for graduates out there anyway like I don't want to stray into the validity of university or not but but what I'm challenging is the assumption that if someone's doing well in life they will go off to university um, when we know that at university that you know they're even even when when I was in university the first time in the 90s, I was doing a science degree. I learned all about postmodernism. Yeah, it was fascinating to me studying science. And I learned so much about postmodernism, you know. And on the one hand, we're being told, look at the, look at the measuring cylinder and see what number it's at. And on the other hand, we're being told there's there's no such thing as objective truth. And it's really important that you guys get this. You know, it's, it's mad. <laughs> yeah, yeah. it's objective truth aside from mathematics. That's just a social construct. Well, even that's being challenged now, isn't it? It's the whole yeah. thing about two plus two can equal five. Yeah. Um, you just have to... It's, it's, there's some crazy stuff out there. You have to, you have to go to university sometimes to... Uh, unlearn common sense I do do you find just before we move on to that overlap because that that kind of um comes into some of the sort of critical theory type type stuff and, and racism I, I do you find um it, in the church you're in I mean I, I would say even in middle class church there is a certain element that pushes back against things like apologetics and it's just read the Bible and pray and have faith. Unfortunately, I'm not in one of those churches. We tend to <laughs> tend to have a bit of, yes, the Bible has power and there's also good reason to believe. Um, and But do you find within your estate that there is a bit of pushback against apologetics or do you find that actually there needs to be a blend of, here's the Bible, let's read it together here's some historical evidence to go alongside what you're reading. Uh, like, what, what, I'm just trying to get a picture of what you're finding as a, because you lead your church, don't you? You're a pastor there? Or... Yeah, I'm the pastor. Okay. Yeah. Hopefully the Holy Spirit's leading it. Yeah. I know what you mean. I know yeah. what you mean. Yeah. But, um, but it, um, it, I'd say that in council estate Christianity, I, uh, I'd say I've seen a mixture, but in general, I found it's men, not strictly true, but in general, it's more men who are into apologetics than, than women. Mm -hmm. And I, I think, um, I think that there's a certain way that doctrine gets presented that can be appealing to men. And so that's why I, I think that I think that apologetics and say even say, say like something like presuppositional apologetics can be appealing to some council estate men. Mm. Um, I think there is a heritage of council estate men learning stuff. There's, there's been a heritage of 
council estate men becoming academic without going to university, you know, that's gone on for years and years, yeah, yeah. Um, and being self-taught. And I think there's something about us that loves to chat about stuff around the table. You know, it might be the table at the pub, debating stuff and all that kind of thing. And I think when you discover stuff like presuppositional apologetics, you get to debate quite a bit because then you get to debate, well, is evidential apologetics wrong? Uh, is it all about presuppositional apologetics? And then you get to the stage where you can debate, should, should it be hard presuppositional apologetics or soft presuppositional apologetics and and i think there's something about a lot of us blokes that like having knowledge and like debating stuff and and i uh, and the same with systematic theology and i i guess i feel like as someone who is naturally academic and sees great value in learning all these things i also wonder if sometimes we get a little bit too much into certain systems and less into the relational aspect of introducing other human beings to Jesus Christ. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, please don't hear that in a anti-intellectual vein at all. I don't mean it, I don't mean it that way at all, but sometimes I feel like the system becomes more important than the introducing people to Jesus. Oh, yeah, I totally agree. And you can see that also in all sorts of doctrinal areas, not just apologetics, it's about the system or about the theologian or about the framework. Um, and, and here's a bunch of verses to back up my view. So yeah, I could, I could totally agree with, with that side of things. Um, Dan, do you have another, any other questions? I want to, I'm happy to take this to a, yeah, yeah, move on. Yeah, gotcha. So, yeah, when we, talk, we talked a little bit about two plus two equals five, and that's coming from a certain area of the internet at the moment uh, and and society. But again, in in what you sent through, you're saying that there's and it kind of links into apologetics and that need to argue and um and, and that part of uh was it one Peter three where we need to have gentleness and respect, but also uh, making sure Christ is Lord, and and what what were your thoughts when you when you sent that through? Because I think that's quite interesting. There's a, there's a harshness to apologetics at the moment, and how does that then relate to BLM, uh, Black Lives Matter, and racism in general? And I was just interesting that you sort of connected these dots. So I just want to explore that a little bit of the overlap with classism and race, apologetics being harsh, and and Black Lives Matter, and we'll sort of interject and have a bit of a conversation around that. Yeah, yeah. So I, I think, um, you know, uh, obviously, uh, you know, apologetics, I know you guys know where it comes from, just just for anyone on YouTube, yeah, you know, it comes from 1 Peter 3.15, where it says, always be prepared to give an answer, you know, and the Greek word behind that is where we get apologetics from. And so apologetics is giving people an, an answer for the hope that we have. And in 1 Peter 3.15, it then says, but do this with gentleness and respect. So when we do our apologetics, when we give people a, a, an answer for why we have so much hope, um, it's supposed to be done in gentleness. And it, it seems to me that um, before, before George Floyd, well before George Floyd, um, 
and before the Black Lives Matter organization was started and before the Black Lives Matter hashtag was started, which I believe was actually before the organization was, was started. Yeah, I believe so, yeah. And before then, us Christians had a harshness about us. And that harshness would come out in, in all areas, but particularly would come out in apologetics. Sometimes, uh, so for example, you might go to an apologetics debate and the way the Christian apologist is talking sometimes just sounds a bit harsh. And it's like, look, I know you've got to disagree with the other guy, but is there a more gentle way of, of doing it? And then sometimes you get people later they do their YouTube videos where they're back in the lab and they're now tearing apart the other per You know, they already debated the guy live, but now they're going through phrase by phrase what he said and throwing in extra arguments and tearing him apart and doing it in a condescending way. Mm -hmm. um, and, and, and I'm thinking, is, is that gentle? And, and then I started seeing apologists started branching out from giving an answer for their faith to then giving a kind of political commentary on anything that comes up in life. And then when, when people have said, hey, there's some injustice going on right now, and I'm just talking about whether they're Christians or non-Christians, people saying there's some injustice. There have been Christians, apologists, and just regular Christians not saying that apologists aren't regular Christians, but you know, what I mean. <laughs> special brand. <laughs> <laughs> and and then they've just, in a harsh way, started slagging off the people who are crying out for justice. And and I'm I'm thinking, well, when we go through the scriptures, we see people who could really critique the the religious leaders. In, in what comes across as quite a harsh way. Um, but at the same time, for the oppressed people, would be fighting their cause. And now we've got a brand of Christianity that when they see someone say they're oppressed, is straight away being really harsh. And, you know, whereas it says in the, in the scriptures that God is close to the brokenhearted and he hears their cry, what the church in general, I think, has demonstrated is we don't want to hear your cry. We want you to pull yourself up by your bootstraps, which is Pelagianism. And, you know, that, that's, that's not grace. That's not Christianity telling people to pull themselves up by their bootstraps. So we move from harshness to a, a, a false gospel. Um, but it's become very popular now, so people will cheer it on. Uh, on social media, you can have your echo chamber where you feel like you've got enough people liking what you post if you say some of this harsh stuff. And so, so yeah, I just have a concern that in apologetics, and even more broadly than apologetics, that we've got so used to talking in a harsh way mm. about people that we're not reflecting the compassionate God that we believe in. Yeah, and there is a, a lot in there um, that I'll resonate with. I've, I've seen, I can picture different different things I've seen online where that, that's definitely happened. Um, 
yeah, I'm not not sure where where to go from that because I, I think in in the sense of that there is definite fear. I think I see it, in that reaction there is a fear within um, the church that if we if we align ourselves or at least agree that certain aspects of society are being well, there's this injustice. Say let's say BLM. If I agree that there's this injustice and I use the BLM hashtag, I'm suddenly a cultural Marxist, I'm aligning myself with someone that wants to d- demolish the nuclear family. Um, and there's this domino of, of from BLM to here we go, we're, we're a Marxist. And, and a lot of Christian responses have very much like shortened that journey and gone the first domino BLM. I can't, I can't do anything with that because it's against Christianity. And that reaction, I think, is is what screams harshness, and, and we, you find that with with different injustices over the last ten years. The the fear that if I align my, if I even acknowledge that injustice, or the hashtag, the slogan, I'm in danger of aligning myself with this entire ideology that isn't the gospel. And so what I'll do is I'll just shut it down uh, straight away. And uh, and oftentimes the way that's shut down is often with another slogan or another really curt response of and uh, we've had it on this show before uh with dr neil shenvey that there's there's often the response of of well if there's racism well have you seen the stats on black on black violence have you seen this other injustice what about abortion and and you end up with this sort of battle of injustices um which which doesn't really help the situation but i was I was just interested in, in if that's going on, what's, what is first off your response to two things like Black Lives Matter? Like how do you respond online? How do you respond in your church? Have you done any, anything within your church on that? So I think in, I mean, from a church history point of view, we can look to the early church fathers to see that they were very comfortable taking Greek concepts and using them in the church, having taken them through the sift of the gospel. Mm. So I think we, we've, got a, we've got a good precedent for saying, actually, historically, Christianity hasn't had a problem with what, you know, they call plundering the Egyptians. You know, um, by God's common grace, we know that God actually gives good things even intellectually to people who don't follow him and so we haven't rejected pythagoras about triangles yet although it sounds like dan might know some people who are (laughs) getting close to doing that Um, but we also you know haven't suddenly discounted calvin who would have been steeped in aristotelian thought you know he would have learned aristotle as part of his training And uh, we haven't ignored the fact that our whole culture in many ways is based on Greek thought, um, which might have some problems from it. But all I'm getting at is it's not like we have had 2000 years of keeping ourselves shut off from any slogan or any concept that anyone in the world has ever said. And Mm. suddenly Black Lives Matter turned up and then it's suddenly like, oh, yikes, what do we do? We need to totally wholesale reject it. Um, You know, so so I think first off, we got some some precedent there. But also in terms of church history, I think we need to recognize 
that for a long time, the church itself, it was from within the church that people taught that black lives were not made in the image of God. So, you know, from the, from the 1600s, the 1700s, the 1800s, even the 1900s, there were people from the church who were arguing that black people weren't even descended from Adam, that they were part of the pre-Adamites. They were a race of people that turned up before Adam. So in Genesis, when it says man was made in God's image, it's only talking about Adam and his descendants, which obviously were the white people, quote unquote. And, you know, all this. So this stuff has come from the church. Mm. And so when you've had a church that our church, you know, historically speaking, with a capital C, you know, that who even had it before the Reformation, it's Pope in the 1400s who said, I give you permission to put these people in perpetual slavery. So we've had a church that has communicated black lives don't matter. Black lives aren't, aren't actually made in the image of God. Black lives were made to be slaves. When that's come out of the church, for us now to step back and say, whoa, some people over there are saying black lives matter. That's a bit Marxist. That's a bit rich. You know what I mean? It's like, really, we should be doing repentance and we should be confessing our sin and saying we really screwed up with what we taught people about black lives for hundreds of years. And it is, it should have been the church that, that that made the slogan black lives matter famous it should have been us we should have been arguing from genesis 1:26 that black lives matter that black lives are made in god's image we should have been doing that we didn't so we need to we need to repent uh, and and i don't mean we need to repent so that social media is happy with us i mean we've got a holy god who's not happy with how we've distorted the doctrine of the image of God. And so we, we should repent, right? Now, some people would say, oh, but that's talking about our forefathers. It's not talking about me. But I'm like, these things carry over in the British imagination and narratives get passed down through the generations. So it's, it's hard to, to really say that, oh, um, none of this has impacted the way I think. Uh, you know, I think you've got to have a very strange approach to how cultures work and how history works to to really argue that you don't carry on any of the, the thinking of your forefathers. Mm. Sorry, that was a long, uh, a long answer there. Good. Yeah, I mean, yeah, no, so, I mean, the history of racism of, of, of in Christianity is, um, yeah, it's complicated. I mean... You've always had counter voices. So one of my favourite uh, people I, I look up to is, uh, is a, I think it was, it was a Franciscan uh, priest called uh, Bartolome de la Casas, who, um, when Cortes and and, uh, and and the Spanish were, you know, heading into South America to kind of plunder for gold. Um, he was sort of sta standing up to the, the powers that be kind of saying, no, look, they are in the image of God, you know, they're, they're, they're just like, they're just like us. Um, but obviously the, the powers of the day, uh, one 
won 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 that battle. And there's there's always been dissenting voices throughout uh, you know Christian history, but it has. Um, it's the same with you know um, you know colonialism and things like that. Is it's difficult because this is where it gets awkward because it's not to dismiss those things, but it is often the people in the people in power projecting those when actually a lot of Christians didn't don't didn't actually harbour those kinds of beliefs. In fact, you know things about slavery is most um, the you know, thing about slavery was it, it was hidden from the British people. Is it? it very rarely did, uh, did did anyone. Well, I mean, it's a whole myth anyway that in the you know, sort of Victorian age that the churches were full anyway. Is the church actually had very little influence um, throughout that time anyway? But um, it, um, yeah, it's 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 messy. It's 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 messy. Um, yeah, I don't. Know. I, I think one of the reasons we probably see so much um, throwback from stuff like BLM. Is because we're because we're so divided culturally. There is a, there's a discomfort to align ourselves with, or to be. I don't know. We're worried about being mis, uh, misrepresented or misperceived. Uh, because I get why someone who is a Christian wouldn't want to align themselves with Black Lives Matter. As um, in the organisation. Yeah, and it's hard to distinguish because you don't want to get into a conversation going, well, no, I mean, I do know black lives actually matter, but I don't support the organisation is that, um, you know, because most Christians don't want to necessarily tear down capitalism because it actually benefits the poor, um, that they don't want to uh, destroy the nuclear family because they realise that actually the nuclear family is, uh, you know, uh, benefits the poor, um, that they don't support abortion on demand. That they don't support these these things, and so there is there is that there is a discomfort with um, I don't know with being perceived to to support those things by saying Black Lives Matter, even though they know Black Lives do matter. Um, and I don't know how I don't know I don't know how to I think that's what a lot of Christians are I, struggling with. I guess I I have a question question then Dan for for people you know, why is it that that there's a two-part question. One is, why is it that it's it, it's mainly amongst Christians that the slogan "Black Lives Matter" is taken in a reductionist way to to mean the organisation? Yeah. When, by common usage, most people today, when they say "Black Lives Matter," are not referring to the organisation. I'd argue. Yeah. To the point that on my Facebook feed, there were Christians who was saying, oh, I'm uncomfortable with the Black Lives Matter being associated with this Marxist organisation. And there were non-Christians from my estate who were saying, we're not asking you to support the organisation. We're just asking you, do our lives matter? Like, you know, yeah. and it was really interesting seeing the contrast. But but also linked with that, why, why do you think it is that there's Christians who are very comfortable to associate themselves with Tom Holland with Jordan Peterson, with whoever that other guy is, um, uh, like like there's there's a there's a number there's a number of of people and and I would also say a, a bunch of columnists who write for certain publications that aren't Christians that my Christian friends are always quoting and always recommending them 
they're either atheists or agnostics, which I don't mean that in a, oh, they're either atheists or agnostics. Like I got mad love for them, um, but, but <laughs> they're made in the image of God. But what I mean is, why is it that we can't be associated with the Marxist, which, by the way, I totally get that. Like, I, yeah. I don't associate myself with Black Lives Matter organization at all, but I do with the hashtag. Hmm. But, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think when we were talking about people like Jordan Peterson, Douglas Murray, Tom Holland, I think a lot of Christians are more comfortable in, um, you know, when, when they say something that aligns with Christianity, they're much more comfortable embracing where they're right and not feeling that they're, that, uh, you know, they, they can accept where they're right without embracing, um, you know, their, the rest of their, uh, you know, met metaphysical assumptions and, and things like that. And I think the thing with BNM, because it, and, and those, and those, you know, some, well, it is political in a way, but I think with BNM, because it's, it's expressly political in the sense that, that the movement actively, and again, let's say, as a, as a political entity, they want to undo things that I think a lot of Christians um, are almost sacrosanct in a way, that the, the nuclear family of capitalism, even though you know, it shouldn't be, it's almost a sort of idolatry of a political system. And um, it, I, don't, I, I don't know if it feels almost like, um, it, it feels threatening. I think there's, there's, a, there's a degree to which they sure. feel like that is threatening in a way that if I, sure. you know, if I can agree with what Tom Holland says in Dominion, that doesn't, that's not kind of an existential threat. Whereas I think with BLM, Christians are much more concerned that as a, as a movement rather than a claim, it, it is this kind of existential threat that's coming to kind of destroy the schools and universities and family life and, 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 the, and the culture and things like that. So I think that might explain some of the, the reticence yeah. to, to, to embrace it. But it then leaves Christians in this really uncomfortable space because, like, we don't want, we don't want, non-Christians thinking we think black lives don't matter because they might be uncomfortable to, you know, to put their hand, you know, put their hands in the air or kneel, or take the knee or to use the hashtag BLM. But, um, but also they don't want to be seen. They don't want other Christians seeing, like other Christians, I think more though, more so than non-Christians to be embracing these um, political and, uh, and assumptions. Mm -hmm. um, and I, and I, I don't, I don't know how to brace that because I, I want people to know that black lives matter to me, mm. but I don't want to support the organization because I don't believe in the destruction of nuclear family. I don't believe in the destruction of capitalism. I don't believe in ab abortion on demand because but, also the unborn are made in the image of God uh, and, and a vulnerable group. Um, and I don't, I don't know how to, to navigate that. And I think a lot of Christians at the moment are struggling with how to navigate that issue. And um, I don't know. It is interesting. Though. I'll take your point, Duncan. That I hear what you're saying, Dan. That it's a political movement, and there's some political aspects of that. But there, there is still an aspect of even Douglas Murray. Uh, his, his views are political. I mean, the transgender stuff is very much political, and Douglas Murray is very much like, here's a line. And I think there's a, a point where we're seeing a lot of Christians aligning themselves with these. Uh, agnostic atheists or atheists um, and 
and they're all they're all on a line that we've suddenly gone actually we all can align ourselves to say here here i stand and no further um but there's still there is a line even with blm and the line is black lives matter i i, I can stand with douglas murray and say some of the stuff with transgender ideology is dangerous but i'm not going to accept all the other ideology around that there's a christian frame for that and i can i should be able to do the same for blm surely I can say Black Lives Matter, Here, here's what they stand for. And we've talked about terms, terminology. I think we do have to be careful. But why do I need to qualify with BLM, not organization? Maybe because Douglas Murray doesn't have an organization. <laughs> I don't know. And, but, and, I, and that's why I think it's, it's to do with, I, I personally think it's to do with white people feeling threatened hmm. by black people because... Uh, like what you were saying, Dan, that there's this fear of, oh, well, what if what if Marxism took over, which I mean, let's face it, that's not going to that's not going to happen in, in Britain. Of all the things we need to be fearful of right now, um, you know, I think that's that's highly unlikely. Um, but but I've heard similar things where people have felt threatened by Islam where people have said Islam is taking over. Um, Britain is going to be taken over by Islam and everything will be terrible. And I find it interesting that people don't feel that I'm talking about white Christians in the UK don't feel threatened by all the all the powerful, rich white men who have taken over the country. I mean, they're not Christians. Uh, their morals in general have been pretty poor. You know, whether we're talking about the expenses scandal or if we're talking about Grenfell or if we're talking about the Windrush scandal or if we're talking about take your pick, you know. Um, And so and so what is with the Christian worldview in Britain where Christians are comfortable with rich, powerful white men running the country being led by atheistic worldviews? But then the idea that there might be some Muslims run the country or the idea that there might be some black Marxists run the country, as unlikely as that is, both of those concepts are really threatening to people and people are like, oh, we've got to do something about this. This is terrible. Why not be really concerned about the first problem? I think, um, I think part of it is that it's not necessary in either or. I think it's not like you can also hold that to be the case. You know, I think a lot of Christians would have a lot of concern about the balance of power and, and, and who has power. But I think, you know, even speaking for myself, is that I can't do anything. Yeah, there's so much. I, I, I'm, I'm someone who, you know, is a, you know, I'm always thinking I find it really hard to switch my brain off. But the downside to that is I end up worrying a lot and, and identifying all these problems I can't do anything about, you know, crony capitalism about, um, you know, the expenses scandal. And I realized I'm powerless to do anything. I'm powerless. Mm-hmm. And, I, and um, there's so many things that make me angry. There's so many injustices, um, so much evil. And um, I feel powerless. But I think a lot of it is about proxim- proximity as well, is that you know, this is something that people are uncomfortable with at the moment, but probably in five years' time, It'll be, it'll be, you know, sadly, those concerns might not be because they're not necessarily at the forefront of their mind. It will become 
that it will be become the rich white man, the bankers issue that we don't talk about necessarily as much anymore. Those sorts of concerns is we become, um, they just become more, they just add to the existing problems and then we'll be, there'll be another thing that maybe Christians are uncomfortable with. So it's not, I, I would, the other thing I'd say as well is it's not just, um, it's not just white Christians who have those concerns as well. It's, it's also black Christians and in the US Hispanic Christians and um, who have who, who, who are dealing with this same issue about, right, well, clearly black lives matter because they're made in the image of God, but have, a, have an uncomfortableness with supporting that movement, even though they might be black themselves. So it's not uh, so... Um, I, I agree with you that it does seem to be predominantly white people, but but it's not it's not just those that group of people that have that are, are de- trying to deal with that tension um, as, as as well. Mm. I, I don't know if we're going to solve it tonight, um, no. <laughs> but it's, it's interesting <laughs> hearing, hearing your views. Um, I'm just just kind of leading into that. We've got um, probably about twenty odd, odd minutes or so. I, I, let us know if you. Um, that's is that about right an hour and a half is that sound about okay total we're, we're at an hour 10 um kind of leading into that where we, we're sort of touching on the problem of pain and suffering in, in some aspects and how we deal with that as christians um there's all this injustice and what i found over the pandemic maybe it's because we've got time to sit down and, and watch the world but you just bombarded with how much stuff is happening around the world that is just awful um, with people in power abusing power, with um, laws that allow things to, to happen to, to, to the unborn, to um, and a, a lot of the stuff that angers me around abortion is the attitude towards disability and um, the sort of whimsical way we talk about, oh, there'll, there'll be less and less Downs syndrome people um, and and. Oh, and a lot of Down syndrome people are more capable than my my daughter because of the syndrome she has. And so we kind of end up with this whole language of um, where black lives matter, it's also disabled people matter. It's it's this language of they're unborn, we terminate a pregnancy, we don't terminate a life, we um, they're a fetus, not a human. The the language matters and we find that with, with every historical event where humans have been atrocious to other humans is they've called those humans something other than human um and and so and you you're saying in the, right at the start that you've lived with with disability uh and how how you managed to pastor a church through that and, and you're very honest on your your vlog i'd be interested in in sort of in, in sort of the last 20 minutes or so how have you found that in relation to, there must be overlap, I think, even there, just because it's people treating other people not very well. What sort of overlap have you found with with this conversation around race, around classism? Do you find yourself having similar conversations on how we should treat people as Christians? Um, what were your thoughts on, on all that? Well, in terms of how we should treat Christians with disabilities? Yeah, well, anyone with a disability. How, how have you found? So I found that, I found that if if I it, it's interesting when I enter a white middle class Christian space, 
I enter a very, very different world to the world I live on in my estate. So in, in my estate, there's this recognition of there is a lot of injustice going on. It's always going on. And we, we need to stand up against it. And we need, you know, we, we, we can vote and we can, we can post stuff on social media and we can talk to people about this stuff. And it's kind of like, on my estate, it's like the same people that will be complaining about how disabled people get treated are the same people who are complaining about how black people get treated the same people talking about how refugees get treated and, and, and so on. You know, there's an awareness on my estate of, oh, look, when things get difficult for Boris, um, suddenly there's a new thing about what are we going to do about all these refugees? That's mm. convenient. You know, mm. that, that kind of thing. Um, trying to keep people awake. Um, but when I'm in white middle-class Christian spaces, I feel like, I can talk about the unborn and their plight, and I can talk about people with disabilities, particularly I can talk about Down syndrome and how under threat they are right now. Um, and, and it can be like, yeah, I'm totally with you. But when I mention how the lower classes are treated, it starts getting a bit iffy, but I get, I get some, yeah, yeah, I'm with you. And then when I talk about how different ethnicities are treated, that's the one where I really feel like, right, now I'm, I'm really kind of a minority report. And, and so, so for me, it's just interesting that in my, my council estate world, it seems to reflect the character of God more because it's more of a holistic, God cares about all these injustices and we're not supposed to tithe the mint and dill, but then ignore all the other things we're supposed to do. Um, but with, with disability, though, I have found that in the Christian world, people are more au fait with how it's wrong to abort disabled babies than people get that the way we treat a lot of disabled people in the church isn't very loving. And I totally get the whole thing of, well, with the unborn, they don't even have a voice. So you need to be a, a, a voice for them. So I totally get the priority in that area. But I also think that we, we haven't thought enough about how do we show love and dignity to disabled people so that it's not just about how can we stop them being aborted? Which obviously mm -hmm. I really badly want to, like I, mm -hmm. I do not wish that I've been aborted. And even though the pain is often excruciating and there's times where I pray to God, if it's possible, God take me tonight, mm -hmm. if it's your will, um, I'm totally against euthanasia. Um, well, obviously we have to, you've got to define what you mean by euthanasia, but the way people are talking about it right now about, getting a, a train to Europe and, you know, getting that. I'm really, I sympathize with people who do that, but I think that's, that's the wrong way. Mm. Yeah. I think, I think that covers a whole range of things with, with church 
being the defense around these things because if you're if you're saying a, abortion is wrong but not loving the single mom <laughs> who's facing it or uh, a family that's just struggling with it or whatever the situation around abortion is because often it there are complexities in that and the concern of of raising a kid with significant needs this huge I, I, I get all that uh, I mean I understand that life but the but then not caring for those families we're not giving an option to say the, the only option then really for them is abortion and if we're then judging them for it why would they come to us for help afterwards and uh, and so that how the church loves people who we deem sinners <laughs> who who probably already know that that's what we deem but how we live as sinners ourselves how we represent ourselves when we are, are often in the wrong is a huge element of how we should evangelize. And, and I would hope that uh, in our walk as Christians, we start seeing a little bit more humility that though I, I think that's not the ideal and I think there's better for you and for your family, let's walk this road together. Let's have this. And, and I think that will combat the individualism that leads to these situations that I'm so I'm isolated in this pain. No one's helping me. Um, I, I think you, you nailed it in, in the message earlier, where the church is an apologetic for, for these things when it's working well, <laughs> when it's following Christ and there's a, the heart and life change um, that's listening to people and hearing their needs and, and trying to find that way to, to work with them. In your, your observation about talking about ethnicities and racism and stuff in the church, I was just thinking as you were talking is that I, I, I think it's, it's, it's very naturally human. Like when you're ashamed of something, you want to sweep it under the carpet. You don't want to talk about it. And I think even though individual Christians won't be able to necessarily look at themselves and think, you know, like, I'm racist or I have racist beliefs. There is a collective shame that we have of our past, especially the Christian past, because we know we should have done better and we know that the the what follows from our theological beliefs about all human beings made in the image of God, you know, those things, mistreatment, racism, slavery, don't follow from those. And and there is a shame. So when I think that's when people bring it up, it, it we become automatically defensive because we're ashamed of the church. Uh, we're ashamed of its silence and what and what it's done. And that, that same shame, I don't think, exists for the other things you notice in the middle-class church. So in terms of disability, actually, I think a lot of churches are at the fore, you know, are really good. Like my church, I know a lot of churches are great at, at, at caring for um, and, and looking after families stuff with children uh, who have disabilities and adults have disabilities. Um, and the same when, when people are struggling financially. You know, I know people will, you know, go beyond the, the call of duty for to do what they can to, to care for people. But those, because we don't have, there's not a collective shame within the church, we can talk about it. Even when we haven't lived up to ideals, it's much easier to have an individual and collective conversation about them because it's not attached to shame. And the, the slavery stuff, the stuff of race, or the stuff of racism just automatically gets your back up because you, you, we, we carry that collective shame, not, not necessarily, collective sin i think that's where people can't come they think they're saying 
that we're you're 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 racing. I'm not saying, but our backs get up because we're we're defensive. We're ashamed of of, of our of our past and our um, our failure to to live up to um, um, justice, the requirements of justice and, and the gospel in in those areas as individuals and, and, and within the church. I don't know whether I was just I was just thinking just just now, just thinking that is is I, I think that's part of what gets people's backs up. And I do I do want to say uh, that I you know I would be happy to say Black Lives Matter. I do, when I was listening to us, I think well people are going to think he doesn't. No, no, I'm happy to say that. I try to make I sure would, to edit that in when we yeah yeah. Short yeah. <laughs> but, I would, but I would also, as I say, by that I would be resolute in saying I'm, I, if someone says oh, you support the Black Lives Matter, no, resolutely. No, but I, I, I absolutely support um, the, 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 the claim and, and would want to live consistently with the claim that Black Lives Matter. Yeah, yeah, I hear you. Yeah, I think it shows that we need, um, we need a better practical application of justification by faith. So it amazes me that, you know, in the last couple of decades, uh, maybe not quite that long, but all the debates going on about justification by faith, uh, you would have thought that we were experts on applying it to our lives, but 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 we're not because we still have that knee-jerk reaction of when someone points out a sin uh, that we want to double down and say, no, I'm not racist, um, or I'm not this, or I'm not that. Whereas the amount of time we've spent talking about justification by faith, we should just, you know, ideally we should daily have this sense of um, I've got Jesus's righteousness. So when someone comes to me and says, you're a racist, because I know my record is Christ's record of being in the right, not my own record of being in the right, I'm free to actually say, do you know what? Maybe you're right. Like my standing with God isn't dependent on my own personal record it's on christ so that frees me up to have a think about what you've said i'm going to go away and think about maybe i am racist and start exploring that possibility hmm. well yeah there's there's another conversation in there i think as well and um before we do that there's just a, i just want to engage with the, the chat a little bit um we usually have a standard question which is uh who should we be listening to or reading so but before we get to that question um just seeing there's quite a lot of chat over the sort of uh, term like why do we think abortion is wrong how do we get that from a, a biblical ethic um that would probably be a longer conversation um I, what, what would be a go-to for you on that duncan just as a sort of summary would there be a resource that you go to could point someone well, to or i mean for me it would be in the ten commandments thou shalt not kill um and with that i'd also want to recognize if i'm talking to someone i want to recognize as well that there are there's a whole there's a whole range of medical situations in which sometimes you are suddenly faced with the terrible news of the doctor saying this is what's going to happen and we have to do this. Mm. And, and I, I, I just want to be clear that um, sometimes this goes beyond a simple, um, this, is, this is killing. So there are tragically situations where people are told um, the mum is going to die if we don't do a certain procedure. 
I'm not, I'm by no means an expert on this, but I've had friends who've been in these situations and, and a lot of people weren't prepared for it. So I'm just saying that to, to couch what I said with sympathy for if there's anyone who's out there who's been in a situation where the doctor's told them you need to do this right now or your partner's going to die and someone's gone ahead and, and done that and then thought that what I'm saying right now is saying that they are a, a murderer. Um, you know, that's, 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 that's not what I'm saying. But all things being equal, um, that is a life someone made in the image of God. And so from the commandment to not kill, we get the idea that we should, we should protect life because the Ten Commandments aren't just to apply narrowly, but to also uh, apply them broadly. Right, there's more on that coming through the chat. Um, digital Gnosis, as you're, you've got quite a lot of uh, stuff to say on this. Just um, come back next week on Thursday. We've got a conversation with uh, Gareth Black, and we're, we're thinking uh, bioethics will be probably a large portion of that conversation where we can kind of engage with more of that uh, in more detail. Um, just looking very quickly through, there's, there's a comment here, just, just on the concerns for Islam and Marxism, um, answering the question why there are concerns, potentially because we've seen those ideologies in power before uh, with significant anti-Christian outcomes. I think we'd probably agree in part with that. I think that conversation's probably been uh, had, but thanks for, for watching. Um, there's a few other comments. I think we're just um, aware of time and um, just don't want to push it too hard. Um, Dan, have you got anything uh, to sum summarize, because you're into the sort of bioethics stuff as well. Um, yeah, no, I was just going to say in terms of books, if people want to look at um, probably the good book, uh, best book to look at is The Case for Life by Scott Klusendorf. Uh, it's probably the, a great book to look at from looking at abortion from a sort of biblical perspective. Um, it's also, like Duncan said, looking at Ten Commandments, but there's, um, you know, the whole, the whole, narrative of scripture and um and also the, the parable of the good samaritan you know asking that question who is my neighbor um and i think um you'd be hard pressed to uh to go and do likewise and uh and, and come out thinking that uh, abor elective abortion could be permissible um so there's also thing and I, I like like phil said next next thursday i'm happy to to to, to chat through this with 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 gareth in a, in a bit more bit more detail um and um yeah maybe we'll have to do a, a question and answer something like just just us two or something another time but yeah. yeah no it's been it's been really interesting talking to that there's so many more things i want to go through especially i could just spend like a couple of hours just talking about the class stuff and um you know it's really interesting listening to your story and like the you know the um you know your your background and, and where you are now and um you know it's 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 inspiring and um i'm sure everyone listening is is, in, is inspired to uh, to share the gospel and and uh see what they can can do to kind of step out of the the middle class bubble they might have found themselves in yeah cheers duncan um so before we do go Last question: Who who should we be listening to, reading, uh, aware of that that you you have has really helped you? So, if you've been reading Christian stuff for a while, I'd suggest spend a year not reading voices from your own cultural background. 
uh, and reading Christian voices from other cultures. So if, if, you, if you're a bloke and you've been reading male authors all the time, read some female authors. If you're, if you're white and you've been reading white authors for a while, definitely read some dip from some different ethnicities. And just that one recommendation, I'd say, based on some of the conversation today would be uh, Ben Lindsay's um, We Need to Talk About Talk About Race. That's a good book. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. I, 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 on, on Twitter, noticed that, um, or was it one of your YouTubes, I think you referenced the Carla's uh, Natives, mm-hmm. um, which I thought was, was quite interesting as well. Um, some, some really good stuff on there um and just on time that is from a non-christian i believe <laughs> as well so uh and and yeah definitely finding people that disagree you'll find that constantly on our, our channel uh talking about reading authors that aren't necessarily christian is is vital um great to have you so i'll just wrap wrap this up thank you so much for the the live chat uh, the conversation sort of ramped up there in the last sort of 10, 10 15 minutes and I, I didn't quite engage as much as I, I usually do. Uh, if next week isn't going to, it's with a guest. So if we don't get a lot of questions done, maybe Dan and I will do a, a one-off sort of looking at, at the case for for life and, and things like that. Um, we've got quite a lot uh, of short conversations where these videos get cut up. So if you aren't able to watch an hour and a half at once, you can sort of dip into those conversations. Feel free to subscribe to our YouTube. Please do subscribe to Urban Ministries. Is it Urban Ministries UK on YouTube? Or is it? Um, on YouTube, it's, uh, yeah, Urban Ministries UK. That's right. So do subscribe to Duncan's uh, YouTube, Twitter. Oh. He's got loads of good stuff. Um, Duncan the- Forbes on YouTube, sorry. Yeah, search for Duncan Forbes, you'll find him. And uh, and if you are able, please do feel free to support his ministry as well. You can find that on uh, their website. Uh, it's been a pleasure. I think I think that's all. The last podcast, podcasts are going out as well. Uh, our conversation with Justin Briley went out today on our podcast, so that's all there. Mary Jo's will come out next week, and I think Duncan's, yours will come out the week after that if I, I get to it on time so uh cool dan any last thoughts words no no see you next time cool (laughs) (laughs) thanks everyone join us next week for another conversation see you later are you not thank you for listening and we hope you enjoyed the show If you like what you hear, please do give us a subscribe on YouTube or follow us on any of the social media out there and give us feedback. Get in touch. Let us know what you think. If you really enjoyed the content and want to support it, find us on patreon.com.